from the moment that uh, Jesus stepped into the public eye, it, it was like an earthquake uh, with relentless aftershocks that came afterward. Uh, when Jesus showed up and stepped into the public spotlight, it was like throwing a giant stone out in the middle of a pond, uh, creating a relentless uh, ripple uh, effect that just kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going that still continues to go till this very day. Uh, when Jesus showed up, he started preaching. Uh, it was really, it was a controversial message. It was simple, it was clear. Um, everybody knew what he was saying when he said it, even more so than sometimes we know uh, what he meant by what he said, because we're removed uh, by some 2000 years from when Jesus said it. So we got to do a little bit of our own homework and we got to do a little hard work to figure out, you know, what was it about what Jesus said that made him so controversial? What was it that Jesus said that made people, you know, uh, recoil? Uh, when it came to some people. Uh, but when Jesus showed up, he had one message. I mean, it was one message and he just kept hammering at it. Uh, one time after the other, after the other, from place to place with group of, you know, one group of people to the next group of people. And it was just the message that he kept coming back to. And he said it in lots of different ways, but really it was the same message. And, and Matthew tells us that it was repent. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Uh, because the kingdom of God has come near. And according to Matthew, because we've been tracking through the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, from that moment on, from the moment that Jesus started preaching that, after he was baptized and introduced to the world by John, his cousin, that from that moment on, Jesus's popularity began to spread like a contagion, like a virus. I mean, it just, it was spreading everywhere. And he went from town to town and from village to village, and he was healing and he was preaching and he was teaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And he was declaring to everybody that, that when it comes to the kingdom of God, everyone, everyone is invited in, no matter who, no matter what. Uh, that was the message. The kingdom of God has come near and everyone is invited in. Everyone was invited in. Everyone is still invited in, no matter who, no matter what. And that was Jesus's message. The kingdom of God has come near and you and me, and the world has been invited in no matter who they are and no matter what they have done. Now, last week we talked about when Jesus saw all of these people that, that were in the culture of that day, he saw them in such a way that provoked compassion, not anger. Uh, when Jesus looked out and he saw all the woes of culture and society and, and all the things that were going on and there's nothing new under the sun. Um, there were scandals, uh, there were sins, uh, there were all of these things that were going on in the culture then that, that was causing all kinds of problems and all kinds of havoc. But when Jesus looked out there, he, he saw people in such a way that it provoked compassion, not anger. It provoked compassion, not condemnation. Uh, it, it provoked mercy, not, not uh, judgment. Because when he saw them, it says, that he saw people as harassed. They were harassed by sin. They'd been torn to shreds by sin and they were helpless against sin because it was like they were sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus, when he saw people that way, he had compassion for them, not anger, not condemnation, not judgment. And all the while, all the while, Jesus never compromised the truth, no, not once. Jesus never compromised the truth and Jesus never put conditions on grace. That's how Jesus ministered while he was on the earth. That's how Jesus calls his church to be present on this earth, to never ever compromise the truth and to never ever put conditions on grace. And so Jesus went from town to town, village to village, inviting people in, no matter who they were, no matter what they had done. 
And his invitation, his invitation, it was so compelling. This is what Matthew says that his invitation was. Jesus said, come to me, come to me. Just come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, all of you who are tired and frustrated and worn out. And he's just not talking about being weary and burdened with life. You know, life's tough right now, or I'm just so tired. You know, the kids are involved in this and the kids are involved in that. And you know, there's a lot of stress at work and there's a lot of deadlines. It's just not that. That's a part of it. But more than that, Jesus is talking about those who are weary and burdened by religion weary and burdened by man-made religion, weary and burdened by the system that religion always creates. He said, come to me, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you, what's this word, let's all say it out loud, rest. He says, when you follow me, it's gonna feel like rest. When you understand everything that you need to understand about following me, it feels like rest. And if it doesn't feel like rest when you're following me, it's because you're not doing it right. It's because maybe there's some things you misunderstand. There's some things you don't understand because following me, it feels like rest. It's, it's not tiring. It's not a burden. It's, it's rest. So he says, take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me for I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And the implication of what Jesus was saying was uncomfortably clear for everybody who heard it in the first century. Jesus was positioning himself not as an extension of religion. He was not positioning himself as an extension of religion, but an alternative to religion. Come to me, all of you who are locked in a religious system, come to me. All of you that are a part of the religious movement of the day, come to me. I'm an alternative to it. I'm not an extension of it. Because Jesus understood that religion, religion ultimately always exhausts people. You say, why does religion exhaust people? Because you never know where you stand with God. And when you never know where you stand with God, that's exhausting. If you never know where you and God stand, if you're good with God, if you're out with God, if things are bad, if you don't know that, it's just exhausting. It's an exhausting way to live. Am I in, am I out, am I good, am I bad? Jesus knew that religion, people, in religion, people get exhausted by the heavy burdens of endless rules, just endless list of things that you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. This exhausting feeling of, of feeling like a failure all the time because when you have endless lists of to-dos and not to-dos, inevitably you end up not checking some boxes. You end up not being able to do some of the things you're supposed to do and you end up doing some of the things that you're not supposed to do and it's exhausting. Nobody, nobody enjoys feeling like a failure. That, I have a sneaky suspicion. That's why a lot of people don't like church because when they come, they leave feeling like a failure and nobody likes feeling like a failure. Jesus said, that's an exhausting way to live. And when you're locked in a religious system with that, you either throw yourself in more and more or you just, you just run away from it as far as you can get because you just don't wanna feel that way. You don't, you don't wanna think that way anymore. And so Jesus comes along and says, but my yoke, or it's another word for a law. He says, my law is easy. When you listen to the teachings of Jesus in the first century, one of the things that's gonna to come to your mind is, well, that's, that feels like an easy yoke. That sounds like an easy yoke, not a difficult, not an impossible yoke. He says, my burden is light. When you, when you understand me and what I came to do and what it means, the weight that I put on you, it is, it is not heavy, it is light. 
And because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it, it results in rest. You can breathe again. And people, they heard this and they said to themselves, well, this sounds a lot better <laughs> than the do more, try harder, and be better message that we always hear. And that's kind of the thing that most of us grew up with. That was the message. That was kind of our idea of the gospel. Try harder, try harder, try harder. Do more, do more, do more. Be better, be better, be better. No matter where you were, that was kind of the message. If you were the top of the top or if you were the bottom of the bottom, it was kind of do more, do more, do more. You know what you need to do? You need to do more. You just need to do more. You need to try harder. You're not trying hard enough. The reason all this is going on, the reason you feel this way, you're just not trying hard enough. So you need to try harder, try harder. You just need to be better. Your life wouldn't be like this if you just be better, be better, be better. And that was kind of the message. And that kind of message is exhausting. That kind of message is heavy. That kind of message, it just pulls the life right out of you. And the people heard what Jesus said and they were like, well, that sounds better than what we've heard. It sounds better than that constant cycle of guilt and shame that seems to be built into every single religious system and is part of every single religious landscape. This sounds so much better because everybody understood Jesus wasn't inviting anybody to keep rules. He wasn't inviting anybody to observe traditions. He wasn't inviting anybody to practice rituals. He said, come to me. He was inviting them to a relationship. He was inviting them to a love that would abolish all fear, to, to a grace that would destroy all guilt and to a truth that would bring freedom. And so for the broken, for the bruised, for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, for the, for the fallen and for the failed, for the ashamed, for the rejected, for the, for the brutalized and the bullied. It was like a piece of warm bread to a hungry man. It was like a drink of cool water to someone who was thirsty and parched. It was like air to someone who was drowning. And people heard it and they were like, that sounds Amazing, that sounds like good news. And unsurprisingly, Matthew, he tells us that news about Jesus spread all over Syria because it's like, you believe this guy, what he's talking about? Have you heard what he's saying? And Matthew says, large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, up above north of Jerusalem, the 10 towns, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, the epicenter of all things Jewish and from all over Judea and from the East and to the Jordan River. People from everywhere were talking about Jesus. People from everywhere were trying to get close to Jesus, listening to what he had to say. They wanted to hear it with their own ears. They wanted to see it with their own eyes. And so Matthew, he tells us these crowds, they keep on growing and they're growing and growing. And he, he lays the plot line. He tells us that lines are being drawn. As he tells this story, choices are being made. Sides are being chosen and the stakes are growing higher. All throughout the gospel for the rest of what Matthew is gonna to talk to us about and tell us about and write about, that's kind of the idea. Lines are being drawn, sides are being chosen, the stakes are growing higher. And so as the crowds followed Jesus and as the crowds grew, guess what else grew? Scrutiny. As Matthew continues to tell his story, the biography of Jesus, He's gonna tell us all kinds of different stories. He's gonna tell us about some of the parables of Jesus, you know, some of the sermons of Jesus, some of the healings of Jesus, some of the interactions of Jesus. And all of these are different stories. And these stories can stand on their own and they could all be preached on their own. 
They're, they're standalone stories. They're stories that Matthew watched play out, what he watched happen. But all of these different stories were intertwined to tell one developing story. And according to Matthew, as Jesus continues to preach and teach and heal, and as his popularity continues to soar higher and higher among the people, there's something else going on. Over here within the religious establishment, the suspicion, the cynicism, and the investigation of the religious establishment into Jesus was evolving into anger and frustration and resentment. Jesus, from their perspective, may be a friend to sinners, but he is, he is no friend to us. They were offended, they were threatened, they were fearful because Jesus was using kingdom language. Jesus was using the language of being a king. And as Jesus claimed to be king, that was a threat to their own religious kingdoms that they all had power and authority over. And if Jesus was a threat to their religious kingdoms, this was not a threat they were willing to ignore. This was not a threat that they were willing to put aside. So hopefully you've been spending some time reading in Matthew since, since we've been you know, trying to focus in on it as we lead up to Easter. And maybe you've noticed if you've read ahead as you read through Matthew's gospel, every time Jesus heals and every time Jesus teaches, eventually it creates controversy. He teaches, he heals, it creates controversy. This controversy leads to a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious establishment. And with each confrontation that comes on the heels of the controversy, and the controversy being what Jesus said and what Jesus did, at the end of every controversy between Jesus and the religious establishment, their hatred of Jesus grew deeper and deeper and deeper until it reached a tipping point. All of that undertow, all of that unrest, all of those unsettled emotions that the religious leaders had towards Jesus that they weren't necessarily comfortable verbalizing or signaling. All of a sudden, all of that hits to the surface. All of a sudden, it comes to a tipping point and the chips just begin to fall where they may. And so all of this is really just the story that Matthew's been telling from the very beginning. This threat of unrest has been present all the way from the birth of Jesus until this point in Jesus's life. Because remember when the wise men came to Herod, they said, where do the law and prophets say that the newborn king of the Jews, where he would be born? And you know, Herod, he, he turns to the religious leaders and he asks them that question. And then among the religious leaders, they know that people are talking about a king being born. The religious leaders know that there's the talk of a, of a baby that's been born in Bethlehem who supposedly has the rightful claim to David's throne. So there's a little bit of whisperings that go on. And then a few decades later, when John the Baptist has a few thousand people out in the wilderness, Matthew tells us that there is a religious leadership, an envoy of them that goes out there and kind of investigates and begins to take account of what's happening because people are whispering about maybe John is the Messiah or maybe John is getting ready to present the Messiah to the world. And then Jesus actually begins to go public with his ministry and people begin to listen to him. And at the end of his sermon, they say, you know what, this guy, He's different. He teaches as one who has authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers and the experts of the law. And all of a sudden the people, the people, the common people began to see the difference between Jesus and the religious establishment. They didn't see Jesus as an extension of religion, but an alternative to religion and specifically an alternative 
to the religious leadership that all of them knew so well. And then, to make matters worse, Jesus, he begins to challenge accepted interpretations of accepted and known scriptures in that day. Now, let me tell you, when you wanna make church people unsettled and unhappy, you just challenge some of their interpretations about the Bible that they've been taught all of their life. That's the quickest way in my line of work to have no work. But I'll tell you, in my line of work, there's nothing more fun to do. There's nothing that makes us think more and creates a little bit of diligence and a little bit of thoughtfulness. And Jesus shows up and says, listen, so much of the things that you've been told all of your life, you're seeing it wrong. You're getting it wrong. And when people are told that, you're telling me my mama was wrong? You're telling me my daddy was wrong? My granny was wrong? My grandpappy was wrong? Are you telling me my dad was a deacon, bro? My dad was a pastor. You're telling me that he preached it wrong for 37 years? And there was all of that going on because Jesus challenged their interpretations, things that they just took for granted, they thought was rock solid, written in stone. Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna substitute what you think for what I know, and they're not the same thing. And then the religious establishment looks at Jesus and they they were like, this guy's trouble because sinners, sinners love him. And if sinners love him, you know what that means? Soft on sin. Soft on sin, that's what he is, he's soft on sin. Have you ever heard him talk about this? Mm -mm, mm -mm. He won't, he won't talk about it. Soft on sin. Hey, we've asked him questions before, (laughs) he won't answer our questions. Have you had that happen? Oh, oh, you're fresh, you've not been around here very long, have you? Uh, He won't answer anything. And sinners love him, so he must be soft on sin. I mean, soft on sin. We're not soft on sin. We're hard on sin. We hate sin. So, you know, he's a problem. And he didn't seem to condemn sin publicly. There was a whole bunch of things Jesus, we have no record of him talking about. So if he didn't condemn it publicly, he must condone it. If he ain't against it, he for it. (laughs) That's the way it must be. And, And they just took offense at it. They were offended by it. They, they were having conversations about it. They, they looked at Jesus and they said, this is the liberal drift. It's drifting left. This guy is as left as left can be. Here we are trying to hold down the conservative right and this guy's coming along and sinners love him. He's not issuing a press release on a number of things And they took offense. They took offense at his friends. They took offense at his methods. They took offense at his message. And it reached a boiling point. It reached a tipping point. And Matthew takes us there in chapter 12. He says, at about that time, when all of this was going on, when all of these emotions are beneath the surface, at about that time, Jesus was walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, The Sabbath is the centerpiece of the controversy. It's the backdrop of the entire passage. Uh, There was nothing more sacrosanct to the Jewish people than the Sabbath. And there was certainly nothing more sacred to the religious establishment 
than the Sabbath. It, it was the hallmark of Jewish identity, that in circumcision. It, it was the things, you know, the two things that set the Jewish people apart from all other people groups. It was circumcision and it was the Sabbath. And, and if those two things were present, then obviously these, these people are Jewish because they're circumcised and they observe the Sabbath. Now, if you went to Sunday school very much as a kid, you know that the Sabbath made the top 10. There were 613 Old Testament laws, 613. I don't even want to venture to say how many of us can't mention the top 10 by name. Not to mention trying to keep up with the other 603. But the Sabbath made the top 10. Remember, you know, remember the Sabbath day and what? Keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the point of that commandment was that everybody gets a day of rest. Everybody gets a day of rest. You get a day of rest, I get a day of rest, the animals get a day of rest, the land gets a day of rest. Everybody gets a day of rest because God wanted to build rest. Rest is important. God wanted to build rest into the rhythm of his people. He wanted to build rest into the fabric of, of how they operated and the culture of their nation and, and, and the culture of their economy and the culture of their family life and, and, and the culture of their, you know, their faith life. And so, you know, they, he tried to build this, this rest into their weekly calendar known as the Sabbath because when we're tired, we do crazy things. When we get exhausted, we don't think clearly. Uh, when we're tired, we say things that we normally wouldn't. And when we're tired, we do things that we normally wouldn't. And so God wanted his people to rest, to have in a time that they would rest. But what was meant to be a gift from God Religion had turned into a burden and just not a burden, perhaps even a curse. So God says, I've got this great gift for you. You're gonna love it. It's great. And in a world that lived hand to mouth, in an agricultural driven culture, without refrigeration, without all the things that we just take for granted, people worked seven days. People worked as much as they could to live, to live. They worked as much as they could to survive and make sure their family survived. And so God shows up and says, you know what? I'm gonna teach you how you can live seven days off of six days of work. And I'm gonna teach you how to depend upon me, just like the nation of Israel depended on him for 40 years in the wilderness. I'm, I'm gonna take care of you. I need you to trust me enough to rest. I, I want you to trust me enough to unplug. I wanna give you this gift. I'm giving you a day off. It's like, what? Day off, yeah, day off, you get a day off. And it was meant to be a gift. But the religious leaders, over time, they, they turned this gift into a burden, they turned it into a curse. And what was supposed to be the best day of the week had turned into the worst day of the week because that's what religion does. It takes gifts that God gives us and it turns it into burdens and it turns it into curses. It takes the best things and turns them into the worst things. That's how religion has always worked. It's how it works. It's how it's always gonna work. The simplicity of remember, remember the Sabbath day. Remember, even God took rest. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep that in mind. Use it as a frame of reference. Remember the Sabbath day. How simple. The simplicity of that, it's beautiful. Remember the Sabbath day. Remember that God took a Sabbath rest. You remember the Sabbath day and you Make it, you keep it holy. In other words, you set it aside. You make it different from the other seven. You set it apart for a particular purpose. What's that particular purpose? Rest. 
That was it. That was the beauty, that was the simplicity, but the simplicity gave way to complexity. A complexity of endless amounts of interpretation because religious people, they get together and say, well, you know, uh, you know God wasn't very clear. What do you think he meant? When he said, remember the Sabbath day and set it apart. What do you think that really means? What do you think it really doesn't mean? And so what was really probably coming from a good place turned into something really terrible and something really rotten and it turned into this complex system. This is how complex and convoluted it got. Steve Barabbas, he, he notes that two whole treaties in the Talmud, uh, the, this Jewish literature that, that served as a guide, served as com- commentary on the law, Two entire treaties in the Talmud are devoted to details of Sabbath observance. There's uh, you know, 24, maybe more large chapters about it. One of these, the Shabbat, enumerates the following 39 principal classes of prohibited action. So these prohibitions, things you can't do. And if you do them, you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And, and so they listed them, sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing it, beating it, dyeing it, spinning it. Anybody broke the Sabbath this morning? I didn't think so. It's like, what? I don't even know what they're talking about. Shearing wool, washing it, beating it, dyeing it, spinning it, making a warp of it, making two cords, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing to sew two stitches, catching a deer. When's the last time anybody caught a deer? Other than with the front of your car. Tell you, I went out of the woods the other day, uh, caught me a deer. <laughs> oh, did you now? That's a great story. Could you tell me more? Catching a deer, killing, skinning, salting it, preparing its hide, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, blotting out for the purpose of writing two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing, lighting a fire, building with a, beating with a hammer, and carrying from one property to another. He says, each of these... Chief enactments were further discussed and elaborated so that there actually was several hundred things a conscientious law-abiding Jew could not do on the Sabbath. So out of those 39 things came all of these litanies of application. One being that if you broke your bone on the Sabbath, you, you couldn't set it till the next day. If you had a toothache on the Sabbath, you couldn't pull it, but you could suck on vinegar. If you were a doctor, you couldn't really practice medicine on the Sabbath unless it was life and death. But even then, you weren't supposed to make the person look noticeably better. You were just supposed to keep them from dying. You could walk 3,000 steps from your house, but no further, except if there's a garden at the end of those 3,000 steps and where your food is, that's constituted as home. So you actually got another 3,000 steps on top of that. I mean, there was just on and on. You couldn't take a bath because you might splash water onto the floor. And if you splash water on the floor, you may be guilty of washing the floor. There were only certain things you could pick up and certain things you could put down in certain places at certain times, unless you broke the Sabbath. And it just went on and on and on and on. That's what the Sabbath had become. So most people spent the day fretting. Am I at 2,980 or 2,900? Honey, I've just got to sit here for the rest of the day. I'm not sure where I'm at. I mean, it's just, everybody's fretting. Have I walked too far? Have I lifted too much? You know, you, you, you couldn't carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig. But you could carry half a fig twice. Just simple fractions, folks, simple fractions. 
I mean, this is how elaborate it was. I mean, it, it was like, okay, he, and what meant to bring rest and what was meant to bring freedom and what was meant to bring joy was miserable. It was horrible. It's like, what can we actually do? We can't do anything. Can't shake off your clothes because in shaking off your clothes, there may be an insect on it and the insect may fall to the floor and die and you've killed. (laughs) Women weren't allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath lest they see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it. I mean, it was just like, what can we do? And everybody just, you know, I'm not getting out of bed today. I'm just gonna lay here. It's like, it was so life-taking. So this, this was what was going on when Matthew says that about that time, they were walking through some of the grain fields on the Sabbath. This is how people thought about it. His disciples were hungry, Jesus' disciples. So they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. Now, this is not their field, but they're eating from it anyway, because this was allowed, you know, under the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, it was kind of a public welfare. Uh, You were allowed to graze from the margins of other people's field. If you were a widow or a foreigner, you found yourself in a bad predicament and bad situation. Uh, God built in generosity, God built mercy, God God built that into the system, into the economy, into the culture. And, And so when you planted your field, you always knew that the margins out there were meant for somebody else. So he was training people, you know, it's not all mine. Some of it's to be given away. Some of it will be given away. Some of it will be taken by people who are in need. And and so that was just built in. So they're not breaking the law, though this is not their field. They're actually leveraging the law because they're hungry. And the disciples, these were working guys that had left their jobs to follow Jesus. So money's tight, they're hungry. So you gotta get the scene. These guys, they had a need. And they knew that they could meet the need based on what the law had provided in the book of Deuteronomy. So they're doing what Moses said was okay. But some of the Pharisees saw them and they protested. And they said, look, look at your disciples, Jesus. They are breaking the law. They're breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Your disciples are breaking one of the top 10. Your disciples. They're harvesting. That's one of the 39. That's one of the things you're not supposed to do. It's a no-no. You can't remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy if you're harvesting grain because they would go through the field and they would take some and they would rub their hands together. And then what was left over, they would put in their mouth and and they were eating it. And the, the religious leaders were there. I don't even know why they were there. It's like they had their lawn chairs to see if anybody showed up that day and broke the Sabbath. And there they are, the moral policemen, self-appointed moral policemen. Hey, look at your disciples, Jesus. They're breaking the law. You see, that's what religious people do. That's what religion trains us to do. That's what legalism does to us. It eventually pushes us back to sitting down and watching for other people to mess up, for other people to fall short, for other people to sin. That's what religion does. That's how religion thrives. It motivates us just to sit back and watch what everybody else is doing. And the irony of the story is this, the religious leaders were supposedly the ones who loved right more than anybody else, but they sure got a kick out of watching people get it wrong. 
They loved the law of God supposedly more than anybody else, but there was something, there was something broken. There was something crooked. There was something, there was something out of balance because they actually, there was a part of them that enjoyed seeing people break the law of God. Because when other people broke the law of God, they got an opportunity to point it out and they got an opportunity to rage against that sin and to rage against that person, to condemn them. And in condemning other people, it was in this this really convoluted way that made themselves feel better about themselves. It, It made them feel better than what they actually what they actually were. And that's how religion works. And as long as I'm looking at you and as long as I'm picking on you and as long as I can find something that you're doing that I'd never do, as long as you're doing something that I'm not struggling with, then I can one-up you. I can climb on my box and I can point my finger at you and I can condemn you, preach about you, pray about you, talk about you to all my friends because in doing so, it makes me feel just a smidgen holier a smidgen more righteous. That's how it works. That's the game, that's the system. That's why a lot of people love to play. Because in a world where very few people are feeling good about themselves, you get inside religion and you find some things that you're good at, you'll find somebody else who's not good at it and you are on your way to a more full self-esteem. You sit back and you take score and when people don't score when they're supposed to, mark them up, eventually you dismiss them and you discount them and you just hold it against them. You make judgment calls, you stereotype and that's how it works. Legalism causes you to value certain truth to the point that you can no longer extend grace. It's not all truth, it's usually just certain truth. It's about a handful. And it changes with every, with every generation. Every generation finds about three or four things that's gonna bring the world to hell in a handbasket. Time out, a little theology for us Christians. The world is not going to hell in a handbasket. The world is going to God and he's gonna remake it all. So we're not, we're not in fear of losing anything. We're not in fear of seeing it all crumble. We know the end of the story. So there, there's, there's nothing, there's not two or three, four or five things. It's gonna be the end of us all. It's gonna be the end of us all. No, there's no, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. But it's really helpful for us to find three or four things that we believe is such a thing. Then we can get angry. Then we can get judgmental. And then we can feel good about ourselves. That's how it works. That's how it has always worked. And normally we have to find the people who sin a little different than we do because finding those who sin the same way we do, it doesn't work that way. It's not the same effect. So you gotta find some people who sin different, who believe different, who act different. And, and that's, that's how you do it. And so here they are. These guys are keeping the Sabbath, but they found somebody who's hungry and got them some food. So Jesus responds and says, Haven't you read in the scriptures? I love this. Haven't you read in the scriptures when David said that he and his companions were hungry? Haven't you read about what happened when David and his companions were hungry? My guys are hungry, but have you read about, and of course Jesus knew that they had read. This was totally sarcastic. They had read it a hundred times. They knew every part of the story that Jesus is talking about, but what Jesus is gonna point out, they had missed the point of what they had read. 
hundreds and hundreds of times. Jesus isn't about to question their knowledge of scripture. Jesus is about to question their interpretation of scripture. And that's why the religious people get so offended. He said, you remember when David and his men were hungry, they were fleeing from Saul and they were, they were all hungry and they had no place to go. So, you know, he, he went to the house of God and he and his companions, they, oh, there, there it is again, broke the law. They broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat because God had been very clear in the Old Testament. This was sacred bread that only the priests could eat. That was it, nobody else. That was the law. It was not up for debate. It was very clear, not up for interpretation. So David and his men ate that bread. The priest let them eat that bread and they broke the law. The problem though, the text in the Old Testament doesn't condemn David for breaking the law, doesn't condemn the priest for breaking the law, doesn't even make it sound like they've done anything wrong. And Jesus wants them to know, David broke the letter of the law. His men, that priest, they broke the letter of the law, but there's something more important than the letter of the law. You say, what's more important than the letter of the law? The spirit of the law. And Jesus is trying to teach them that God allowed his law to be broken by David, by that priest, by David's companions. He allowed his law to be broken without a penalty because a person's welfare was at stake because it was in the interest of somebody else. God set aside his law for the sake of mercy. That God in that moment sided with mercy against his own law. And I'm telling you, if you're not halfway uneasy right now, you're not paying attention because what they heard was almost blasphemous. That you're saying that God sides with mercy against his own law? And they didn't even wanna to come to the grips of this is what Jesus was saying. Jesus was trying to teach them that doing good is more important in that moment than what the law actually said. Because what was to be considered was the intent of the law, the spirit of the law, which Jesus had taught over and over again, was to do for others what you would want them to do for you, to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all the law and the prophets, this is the truest application. This is the truest interpretation of the law of Moses. That's it. Every interpretation, every application, it is to do for others, to love others. So the Pharisees are in a pickle because they would have to condemn David, their hero, and they're not gonna do that. They would have to condemn David if they were gonna to continue to con condemn Jesus' disciples. And so everybody's uneasy at what Jesus is saying because he's making a case that the law is never more important than people. That the law of God is never more important than people. And that the law of God is never a worthy excuse to withhold mercy or to withhold love that the letter of the law always submits to and bows to the spirit of the law. In other words, Jesus was saying, any interpretation of scripture that restricts the flow of mercy is the wrong interpretation. It's like, what? But what about? Jesus pointed to this, but what about? In other words, it's always unlawful to be unloving. It would have been unloving to withhold bread from David and his men. It would have been unloving to tell my disciples that they couldn't get bread when they were hungry, even though it was on the Sabbath. 
And to do the unloving thing would do the unlawful thing because the law of God, the superseding law of God is love. That is the law of God. That's the ultimate interpretation of God's love. And so they're listening and they're, they're uneasy with all of this because they know the, the inverse is also true that to do the unloving thing is what really it means to do the unlawful thing. To do the unloving thing is actually the unlawful thing. That we are guilty of breaking God's law every time we withhold mercy, every time we withhold mercy and love. And he says, and haven't you heard when you read in the law of Moses that the priest on duty at the temple may work on the Sabbath? He said, they teach, they pray, they slaughter animals, they drag those carcasses all the way up to the altar. I mean, it's hard work. But you know what? The law clearly gives them an exemption to do work. You know why? For the benefit of people. So Jesus is saying, guys, you need to, re, you need to radically reread what you think you know and radically revisit what you think you know and realign your life around it because I'm telling you, you're wrong. He says, I tell you that there is one who is here, even in your presence, who is greater than the temple. And if the priest can do the work of the temple because it's so important and not be guilty of breaking the Sabbath, if I am more important than the temple, my work as the Messiah, my work as the son of man, it takes precedent over your interpretations of what it means to break or to keep the Sabbath. In other words, if the work at the temple superseded Sabbath rules, I am greater than the temple and I overrule all the rules. Woo! But you would have not condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. If you just understood the point of all the parts you've been reading, the thing that God's most interested in is not your sacrifices. It's not your worship songs. It's not your Bible memorization. It's that you would show mercy. And if you're trying to offer sacrifices and memorize the Bible and attend the temple, and if you're trying to do all of that, all the while you refuse to show mercy, <laughs> you've missed it. You don't get it. You just don't get it, do you? That's why some people can feel good about coming to church every week. That's why they can feel good about singing when they sing, praying when they pray, reading the Bible when they pray, you know, read the Bible when they read the Bible and treat everybody else like a jerk. Because they don't get it. Jesus said, God wants us to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. He says, God's not interested in the things you're interested in. You guys just don't know. He wants you to show love and offer kindness. And if you guys understood this, you wouldn't be condemning my guys. And if you understood this, your theology, your beliefs wouldn't allow you to mistreat and malign and resent and hate other people. You, you wouldn't if you got that. You wouldn't be condemning people. You'd have compassion. You wouldn't hate them. You, you would love them. You'd be praying for them. You'd be trying to serve them. You wouldn't value your positions, religious or political, over people. You wouldn't withhold justice. You wouldn't withhold mercy and grace from people just because their position's different than yours. You just wouldn't. 
Jesus is saying, if the way that you practice your faith gets in the way of love, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. He says, and he says, let me just be clear. For the son of man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Guys, the king is here. And I'm telling you, I am the lawgiver. And as the one who gave it, I know what I meant when I said it. And I'm telling you that what you think, it's wrong. You think the Sabbath is most sacred. But I want to tell you that people who break the law are more sacred than the law they break. Think about that for a minute. You know how I know that? I'm a dad. I've got rules in my house. Important rules in my house. But every single time, I know it's going to shock you, but my boys break them. But every single time my boys break my rules, which I made and I love and I set and I believe in and I believe are best, every time my boys break one of my rules, they're still more important to me than the rules they broke. And if we could just remember, that's how God feels about us. And if we could just remember, that's how God feels about the world. People who break the law are more sacred than the law they break. I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story, but I don't have to because that's enough of the story. Jesus said, if you're using your beliefs, if you're using your politics, if you're using your ideas, if you're using anything in your life as a reason to withhold mercy or love from somebody else, he said, you didn't learn it from me. You didn't get it from me. You didn't get it from the Bible. Because the application, the ultimate application, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's, here's the big idea. When what's most important to God isn't what's most important to us, you know what happens? People get hurt. When what's most important to God isn't most important to us, people always get hurt. We end up inverting the values that Jesus said they are not the values of the kingdom of God. We put positions over people. We put theology over ministry. And we withhold mercy and love. So let me ask you a question as we wrap it up. Is there anything you're holding on to that has caused you Anything you're holding on to that has caused you to withhold mercy and love from somebody else? Has something in your life become more important than some of the people in your life that you're willing to unlove them, you're willing to withhold love or mercy from because of something else that's become more valuable when people are the most sacred thing? As we bow our heads and close our eyes at all of our campuses, Holy Spirit, would you speak into our hearts for just a moment? Would you, God, just show us where, where we are, where we fit in. God, that we don't wanna be like the religious leaders. We don't wanna be like the religious establishment. We don't wanna forfeit compassion and condemn instead. 
We don't wanna think that you're most interested in us offering sacrifices when you're most interested in us showing mercy. Jesus, you said that we should be known by all people because we love one another. It's our trademark. It's how people will know that we follow you. God, if, if religion has crept in, if tradition has crept in, if misinterpretations of the scripture have, have crept in, God, if we have given more value to certain aspects of what the scriptures say without trying to understand what those scriptures mean, ultimately, God, and it's caused us to, to feel anger rather than compassion, if it's brought us to the place, God, where we're just not willing to give mercy or show grace, God, would you, would you show us? Would you break down those traditions? Would you break down that religion? And would you remind us that the most important thing to you is people? And when people are not the most important thing to us, somebody always gets hurt. So Father, speak to us in this moment. And if we've become religious, if we've become legalistic, God, let us repent of it to turn away from it in this moment. So as we sit here, Father, and listen to the words of this song, speak beyond our ears and our hearts. In Jesus' name.